Our scripture reading this morning is from John 17, and it's the verse 20 through 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In 2010, LeBron James, maybe the best pro pro basketball player ever, went to the Miami Heat. He wanted to win a championship. He'd been playing in Cleveland for many years and had not even come close. So in a matter of speaking, he took matters into his own hands and he engineered getting to Miami. And then he set to work to build a dream team. He wanted to surround himself with other players he considered to be worthy to join his quest. That season, he was joined by Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosch. And at the start of the season, they struggled to win games that should have been a blowout. As the season progressed, they started to get it together. They did go to the NBA championship, the finals, but in the end, they lost to the Dallas Mavericks four games to two. How could this happen? They gathered the best players in the league Shouldn't they have won every game? Shouldn't they have won the NBA championship that year? We see this all the time in pro sports everywhere. The teams with the biggest payroll, attracting the best players, the best talent, shouldn't they win all the time? New York Yankees, I'm talking to you. We see it in college as well. The best schools with the best players, the most money spent on the program, the biggest stadiums, the best coaches. And they still don't win championships. Sometimes they don't even break 500. They lose more games than they win. How? How can this be? Because generally speaking, the best players have been the best players their whole lives in junior high, high school, College, they get into the pros. They've been the star of the team. They've been in the center of attention. They've been the center of their universe. Those teams don't play as teams. Those star players consider the rest of the team as their supporting cast. Opposing teams that know that all they have to do to win is to shut down that star player, and they can win. However, When those teams with a star player figure out that each member brings something to the table, they're all valuable. They all contribute. And ultimately, when they work together, they win. The lesson for all of us from this is when we work together, we win. We are better together. Did you know this? Of course you did. We've known this forever. 
Since the start of time, we've all lived in tribes, whether it was on the Great Plains, the savannah in Africa, northern Europe, the Amazon rainforest. Over time, we evolved from these nomadic tribes into communities, but we knew that to live, to survive this harsh, cruel world, you had to live in a tribe. If you didn't, you would perish. If you did something to offend the tribe and they cast you out, it was a death sentence. Mother Nature is the same way. All herd animals depend on each other to survive. Cattle, horses, sheep. If one animal somehow gets separated from the herd of the flock, they can't survive very long on their own. In fact, predatory animals count on this. Many times they strategically try to separate one of the animals from the herd because they are easy prey. Jesus builds on this. Jesus used parables and metaphors all the time to explain things to fishermen and to shepherds. I am the shepherd, you are my sheep. As he spoke to the shepherds, they understood this. They understood how important it was to keep the flock together and in turn how important it was to him, his flock lived together in unity. So let me illustrate this for you. This is the Shawnee tribal leader, Tecumseh. And he said, a single twig breaks, but a bundle of twigs is strong. Single sheet of paper. Don't try this at home. Professional driver, closed course. One, two, three, four, five, and that's it. You can't tear it anymore. It's just paper, but it's paper unified. All this to say, unity is key to survival in all aspects of our lives. For our communities, our businesses, military units, working as individuals, we're only as strong as a sheet of paper. Collectively, we are indestructible. Unity was at the top of mind for the Apostle Paul. He was writing about it all the time. For those that might be new here, Paul first appears early in the New Testament by another name. He was Saul. He was a Pharisee that was rapidly focused on wiping out these new Christians. He was a bounty hunter that hunted, jailed, killed these new Christians. And as he was on the road to Damascus in pursuit of Christians, the very abbreviated version of this story is that Jesus appeared to him and converted him. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But the Apostle Paul went on to start many churches in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean, and much of the New Testament is Paul's letters back to these churches, helping them and coaching them as they went through trials and tribulations, spats, and growing pains. And Paul saw the dangers of churches that were not unified. His letters reflected that. This is just a very small sampling, but there's a lot of his letters back to those churches that were dealing with unity issues. 1 Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that you, there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. 
individuals coming together, Romans 12. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has special functions, so it is with Christ's body. We are all parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Again, 1 Corinthians, just as the a body through one has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews, Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. And it wasn't just Paul talking about unity. I mean, if you look in the Old Testament, it's there too. The psalmist says in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. Old Testament, New Testament, unity is the key to happiness, harmony, and survival. Yet today, unity seems to be the scarest of resources, the scarcest of resources. There was a time in this country when we were a country unified. When I was a kid, and it wasn't that long ago, I recall all the small towns in Texas had folks with different last names, grandparents that came from all over the world, not much in the way of common history or background. And it wasn't a perfect time. They were imperfect people, just like we are. But they were unified in their belief of a common and unified future. They were different in all ways, in origin and religion and even politics. My grandparents grew up around Temple, but they spent most of their adult lives together on a ranch near Wichita Falls. My grandfather was, a, was the original FDR Democrat. And his best friend was a guy named Woodrow Patton. And Woodrow was a little bit right of him. Woodrow was farther right than probably Barry Goldwater. But they did everything together. They fished, they helped each other build barns, they fixed fences together, they supported each other through challenges with their herds. You never would have known that they were as polarly opposite on something that today would be a deal killer for a friendship. Woodrow passed away before my grandfather did. And my grandfather mourned his passing until he passed away many years later. And this is my memory of how it used to be almost everywhere here. We were aligned on 99% of the things we agreed on and the 1% of disagreement, it didn't matter. And then something recently changed. Why? 99% unified, 1% difference. What is different now? What murdered our once valued and treasured unity? It's probably debatable. I think that sociologists and TV pundits alike would probably disagree about the root cause. Here's my theory. I offer it for free, which means that that's how valuable it is. The first thing I would say is there's huge money and power in fracturing us and putting it at odds with each other. 
I think it's a part of it's the 24-hour news cycle. Controversy and anger and hate sell, and both sides of the three-letter news networks use the same recipe. If I can get you to hate your neighbors, your friends, your family, and then feed you a steady stream of increasingly vitriolic diet of lesser and lesser true stuff, and I can get you to tune in, you become an increasingly dependable revenue stream for me. Lather, rinse, repeat. What's worse than this, if I can do all the above, I can get you to vote for me. Send me to Washington to protect you from the evil of the other side. And again, all sides use the same recipe. The second killer of unity is social media. You guys have heard me rant at this like for 10 years, so you're probably tired of it. Bear with me, okay? In my humble opinion, is exactly not that. In my humble opinion really means my opinion is all that matters. You have to accept my opinion as the gospel, and if you don't, you are a hater. I ask you, did, did we really change that much in just a few years? Did our neighbors really change that much in just a few years? Friends and neighbors, we watched their kids grow up. We shared Sunday dinner. We mended fences with them. We built their barns. We celebrated their wins. We mourned their losses. Did we change that much? Did they really change that much? No. No. They didn't. We all just heard the same lie over and over again. You're always right. They're always wrong. And if you hear the same lie over and over again enough, it becomes true. So this brings me to the razor's edge of today's message. Two weeks ago, Elizabeth, she was here a second ago. Where is she? There she is. Okay. Elizabeth brought the message that may become known as the elephant in the room. Over the next little while as a church, we're going to wrestle with some things. We're going to have some conversations. We're going to make some decisions. True story. No doubt that out there in the world, there has been evil. It's been there for a long time. But always, at least when we came in here, When we came together, we all knew, we all agreed why we were here. And we agreed about the Savior that we came here for and to serve. A community of imperfect people who are transformed by God's perfect love and change the world together. I'm going to tell you, over the coming weeks, if we bring all those bad habits that we recently learned from the world out there and bring them in here, things are going to get out of hand fast. There's going to be a lot of slamming doors and raised voices, wagging fingers, hurt feelings.
So how do we stop that from happening? A few suggestions come to mind. One, we listen. And by listen, I don't mean passive listening. Do you know what passive listening is? It's when the other person's talking and you're, you're not talking, you're biting your tongue, but what you're really doing is just counting the seconds until they stop talking long enough for you to blurt out what your thoughts are. You pretend to listen. You really don't care what the other person has to say. All you want to do is tell them how wrong they are and how right you are. My wife's coming to the 11 o'clock, so I can mention this here. Do you ever argue with your spouse? Sometimes the longer you argue, it becomes less and less about the this point of disagreement. It becomes more about being right. Oh, yeah? Well, you never take the garbage out. Oh, yeah? Well, your mom's a troll. Oh, yeah? Well, I never liked your cooking anyway. Oh, yeah? You're a horrible provider. Maybe these things don't happen in your house. I'm not saying they happen in mine, but each blow gets closer and closer to the nuclear option, the point from which I am sorry or please forgive me will not mend the damage. Now, by listening, I mean active listening. Active listening really is really listening, and it's the easiest thing to do, and it's the hardest thing to do. It requires us to use our brain to think. What is it that I'm hearing? What is it that I think they're saying? What is it on their heart that's behind this? Why do they think that? What am I missing? I've heard this called some things, a lot of different things, but this is the easiest way I know how to put it. Recapture by rephrasing. Now, if I understand you correctly, you said this. Is that right? Non-judgmental. When we passively listen, we're not paying attention to what the other person is saying. We often end up talking past each other, and my wife and I have done this before. There have been times when we've argued about something until one of us realized that we actually agreed about what we were discussing. The second one. This goes back to the 99% and 1%. Look for common ground. Let's start to look for all the areas we are in violent agreement with each other before we get to the parts where we think it's time to take up arms and shred each other. Number three, respect. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have enough people out there that would love to see us fight with each other in here. Let's try to be respectful of each other all the time. Love each other as Christ loved us first, especially when we disagree. Don't make it personal. Four, ask yourself, does this part of the discussion need to really be a life and death battle? 
is this the hill that I'm ready to die on? It's easier said than done. It's tricky. Realize this. We've been killing each other since the start of time over something because we think it is over its life and death. Followers of Christ, Protestants and Christians, were killing each other as recently as the 1990s. Both always felt that they were justified to do whatever it took to win and that God was on their side. God told me that the end justifies the means. Did he now? Did God really tell you that? If Jesus was here today, he would side with me and he'd be okay with doing whatever's required to crush the other side. And if you can say that to yourself and you believe it, maybe you should just take a step back and take a breath. If you believe that you're a warrior for Christ, you may want to revisit the first part of the Gospels. Christ doesn't need warriors to fight for him. Instead, he is looking for disciples to love each other as he loved us. And look, y'all, this is a comprehensive guide to equip all of us with all the tools required for the next coming months. But it's a start. It's a reminder. It's a cautionary tale. It's a warning flag. Any church that undergoes something like this, you're going to have to treat the discussion, the people involved, like you would one of your grandmother's teacups. If you get careless, one slip of the tongue, one harsh word, you're going to drop and break the cup, and all the super glue in the world will never, ever fix it. Everyone will lose. So let me close it out with this thought. When the Berlin Wall fell, when the, Soviets, when the Soviet Union fell, we learned a lot about their strategy for beating us all those years. We suspected it, but what we learned after reading, examining all the documents that they had was just how pervasive the strategy was across the board with everything they do. They always knew they could never win by attacking us from the outside. We were too strong. We were too unified. And one attack on one of, an attack on one of us was an attack on all of us. Instead, the plan always was to get us to destroy ourselves from the inside, to get us to distrust our leaders, to suspect everyone's motives, have us all trying to attack from whatever moral high ground we thought we possessed. And in the end, they failed. But looking back around now, did they really? If we break our grandmother's teacup, we know who loses, but who wins? Because there's always a loser and there's always a winner. We don't talk about this much in Methodism. I don't understand why. But who wins is the enemy. We never talk about the enemy. Maybe now is when we start to talk about the enemy, start to think about the enemy. Stop giving the enemy such easy wins, y'all. The enemy has always understood each and every one of all of our weaknesses and how to pull those levers like a virtuoso. Tell me if you see one or more of this in our world today more than you think you used to. Gluttony, lust, greed, envy, sorrow, Sloth, wrath, and pride. 
As we go through the coming months, maybe do this. Don't look at things through the lens of my side has to win, but maybe rather, how can I make sure that my words and my actions keep the enemy from winning? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.